You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. We're going to start at verse 14. So verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And then down to 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And if you go down to verse 32, about halfway through that verse, it says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. And then to verse 42. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
it's quite an amazing chapter, isn't it? And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is what we remember every Easter Sunday morning, is the truth on which the whole of Christianity either stands or falls. In verse 14, we've got this this statement, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Jesus coming back to life is what validates everything that he said. His claim to be God himself is justified by the fact that he came back to life and it therefore demonstrates that what he said was true and therefore we must put our faith in him because he is God. That's the whole of Christianity. If he didn't come back to life, then actually all of his claims to be God are clearly false and the whole of Christianity falls down. If the resurrection is true, Christianity is true. If it is false, Christianity is false. It's as simple as that. Tim Keller, who leads a church in New York, which happens also to be called Redeemer, says, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like Jesus' teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. I was brought up going to church um, as a teenager, then I kind of rebelled against that. I continued going to church, but I just thought it was fairy stories that uh, old people believed and kind of had some moral teaching, which I thought was all right, so long as I could choose the bits that I wanted to abide by. Um, so when I left home, aged 18, I thought this is a chance for me to uh, be free and embrace that sin that I had really kind of been restricted by my parents from being able to experience all of those years. Um, as it was, a couple of weeks into having left home, um, then I had a conversation with somebody who started to present me with the historic evidence around the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I couldn't help but become intellectually convinced that the resurrection was a true historical fact, that something that actually happened. I hadn't kind of made a heart choice by that point, but I had made a decision in my head, and I just kind of, I couldn't hold together the fact I wanted to be rational with the belief that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It was literally, I had to have faith that Jesus didn't rise from the dead at that point, and so I kind of became intellectually convinced. And it's simply because he definitely died. He was tortured beforehand. A couple of us uh, experienced the walk of witness on Good Friday, and we were reminded of the brutal torture that Jesus went through simply on the, before he even experienced the cross, which is an effective but not an efficient way of ending someone's life. Certainly, if I had experienced what Jesus experienced, I would have died way before he started carrying that cross up the road. But Jesus was a bit of a burlier man than I am, and so he managed to live through that and died on the cross. After his death, a spear was shoved into his heart. I don't know many people who are able to survive that. And then after that, buried in a tomb, locked shut, no air, for three days, then to claim that the uh, sightings of him afterwards were because he swooned and then somehow bleeding to death, uh, tortured, whipped, bruised, he was able then to move this stone out of the tomb, beat up a whole bunch of guards and go back and appear fine afterwards. That would be quite a miracle anyway. The claims against kind of how he could have disappeared from the tomb or that his body was stolen, which is, uh, again, you'd need blind faith in order to believe that because it wouldn't have been stolen by the Jews or the Romans because if it had, then when these Christians started becoming quite powerful, actually, and a lot of them, they would simply have presented the body and say, no, no, your belief is false. It wouldn't have been stolen by robbers because even the grave clothes were left behind. If you're going to steal anything, then you'd steal at least the clothes. You wouldn't steal a dead body. It has no worth at all. So that's a ridiculous uh, theory as well. And the other theory that goes around is that it was stolen by the disciples. 
which kind of stands up if you think that they wanted to kind of have all of this power and lead this movement. But when you start to realize that 10 out of the remaining 11 disciples gave their life because they stated that they believed Jesus rose from the dead, you start to realize that that is a bit of a silly thing for them to have done if they knew it wasn't true. That was the single fact that for me convinced me intellectually this thing must be true. It was only after having uh, believed that in my mind that I actually came to an experience of knowing Jesus in a relationship. And so this morning I want to chuck out the challenge that if you have not been intellectually convinced, then hey, want to investigate the evidence. I've not presented it all this morning. It's just kind of my own little thoughts on it, I suppose. And there are plenty of books out there. And if you want a conversation, grab me at the end and I'll recommend some to you. Um, but what does entering into a relationship with Jesus, what does that actually lead to as well? In that chapter that we just read, then it demonstrates quite clearly that putting our faith in Jesus Christ, the word that is used is that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the first fruits of many more who will be raised from death. And so it's our resurrection. Now, it does mean that we're united with him in his death, that our faith in him brings this kind of unity. And so actually we're in Christ so that as he dies, that's the ending of sin in our lives. It's the ending of our sins. Sins that we've committed, we receive complete forgiveness from them. The slate is completely wiped clean. It's as if we've never done anything bad at all. But also, it takes away all of the impact of any sin that is committed to us. So sometimes sins can be committed to us and we feel dirty, we feel affected by it, and Jesus wipes that completely clean as well. We are made completely brand new. The old is gone, the new has come. We become new creations. It also means we're united with him in his resurrection. It means that eternal life for you begins the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not, Christians don't believe in life after death. We believe in life, and that's all. <laughs> life forever in these amazing resurrected bodies. Listen to the description of it, the, the comparison that is shown between the body that we live in now and the body that we will inherit at our resurrection. Our body now is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. Our bodies now are covered in dishonor, but are raised in glory. Our bodies now are weak, but will be raised in power. Our bodies now are natural, but they are raised spiritual. Our understanding of what this looks like is incredibly limited. Um, and I want to give you a quick demonstration of what this means. When we perceive color, then we perceive color because we have got three color receptive cones in our eyes. Red, green, and blue. You probably have heard that dogs see in black and white. They kind of do. They actually see in blue and green but we can't really understand what that means because what they do is they see a combination of blue and green in terms of dark and light. Um, and that's why they see that. They only, only got two color receptive cones in their eyes, blue and green. We've got blue, green, and also red, which means that we're able to see uh, the colors in the spectrum. Butterflies have got five color receptive cones. They can see in red, green, and blue, and then two other colors that we don't know what they are can't measure them, can't understand what they are, but they can see the world in a way that is actually two times as good as the difference between us and dogs. Imagine the difference between black and white and color, then multiplied again and again. That's butterflies. Then there is this creature called the mantis shrimp, which there's going to be a picture comes up of it. The mantis shrimp has got 16 color receptive cones in its eyes. 
red, green, blue, and then 13 other sources of color that we can't even comprehend. It has an ability to see you know, different versions of blue. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. You can't, I can't even understand. We can't come up with words to describe how the mantis shrimp is able to look at exactly the same thing as we do, and we might see one color, and they could see 20 billion. And look at, look at it. It's incredible, isn't it? What other creature is there that's got that sort of color? And this is a fully natural creature that exists in this existing creation. When Jesus comes again and redeems this earth as a new earth united with the new heaven, then it will be even better. 16 color receptive cones is going to seem this this pitiful version of what reality is. And we can't even imagine what it is like. It's incredible. I once heard a story that a wheelchair user was having a conversation with another Christian, and the Christian said to the wheelchair user, when you receive your resurrected body, what are you most looking forward to? Are you looking forward to standing, walking, running, dancing, jumping? And the wheelchair user said, I'm most looking forward to kneeling. There's something about the fact that our eternal resurrection bodies as great as they are, are only limited because they're still about us. And actually, when we receive our resurrection bodies, there's something that that wheelchair user encapsulates, which is an understanding that resurrection bodies point us more to him. That actually, in comparison to knowing him, everything else is rubbish. And this experience does start today. N.T. Wright um, is a British uh, Christian kind of speaker and thinker, author. He wrote, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. There's that chapter finished uh, On this, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There's not a sense in which in our life now we're living one life and then there's another one that's coming. This is the beginning of eternity here now. So how should we respond? In reading this chapter, um, I feel as if my beating heart has been ripped from my chest and presented on a plate in front of me for me to inspect. In verse 34, we're really shown how. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. Now this is written to a church and so you think that probably what it's talking about is those that are outside the church and therefore this is going to be a message of we should be going and telling everyone about Jesus. That's a justifiable point, but it's not what he's saying because he continues it and says, I say this to your shame. So he's saying, some have no knowledge of God, but whose shame is it? It's your shame. There are some in your community who have no knowledge of God. And this links, I believe, to verse 19, which is where Paul is writing to these people and he's just said, uh, 
if Christ is not raised, then it means that those who have fallen asleep in Christ, as in those who have died yet have believed and therefore have died kind of in him, they have perished. If Christ hasn't raised, then they're not going to be raised, and so that's the end of it. And there are many claims out there, even among those who would claim to be Christians, that you know, this is what there is. And so Christians are meant to live well right now. But in verse 19 it says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, as in there is no resurrection of the dead, then we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if Jesus Christ, if it turns out he didn't rise from the dead, if it turns out that Christianity is false and we believed a lie, let's imagine that the front page is tomorrow, well, tomorrow's a bank holiday, isn't it? Tuesday, um, are the tomb of Jesus has been discovered and his body is still in it. Christianity is false. Would we, of all people, be most to be pitied? There are some ways in which we might be pitied. I probably wouldn't say most out of all people. A friend of mine recently uh, went to see an independent financial advisor and kind of ran down his uh, kind of his uh, income and his spending. And um, when the guy, this financial advisor, said to him, "You know what? This is everything," uh, then he said, "Well, no, it isn't actually. I also give to a church." And he said, okay, well, how much is that going to be? And we'll include it in the calculation if we have to. And when he told him, then this financial advisor turned to him and said, but how do you afford to do anything then? Where's your life go? There's something about you know, that that made me think, you know, maybe is that what, you know, that financial advisor surely would have felt pity for. You know, you've got this money and you've, you're not even using it for yourself. You're wasting it on some church. That's that's what the Bible's version of Christianity is. I was thinking, who do I pity the most in life? Um, I, I just came up with a couple of examples. Um, you could probably come up with as good ones or better ones that you would understand. I just thought, a, a, a drug addict. A guy who falls in with the wrong crowd at school, ends up kind of getting onto drugs. The drugs get harder and harder until he ends up just kind of flitting between hospital and prison and kind of no way out of this cycle. I think I'd have a lot of pity for that guy. Or a young girl kidnapped and sold into this sex trade and uses a slave until she's become so numbed to it that she ends up being a pimp in the same sex trade that used her as a slave. I'd have pity for her. And what is it about those situations that makes me feel pity? It's because they are trapped by something that makes them make ridiculous sacrifices that mean that they're not experiencing this life. That they're, they're living for this world that, you know, that it's almost kind of a fictional world that they live in and they can't break out of it and so are not experiencing what this world has to offer. I wonder if that's how we need to live as Christians. We need to live in such a way this life is, is this thing that sort of gets in the way. We need to be making sacrifices that are so big that if it turned out to all be false, that we would of all people be most to be pitied. And there are a couple of easy examples that we can look at for that. 
and an easy one, and Adam's mentioned it a lot, so I'm not going to go into loads of details, but money. How do you treat your money? If it turned out that all this Christianity thing was false and someone were to look at your bank statements, would they just go, oh, mate, you just wasted it all, haven't you? Because that's what the Bible's version of Christianity looks like. So when we come to the gift day next week, don't think, oh, you know, what can I afford to give? Think, what can I afford to keep? And then let's give a little bit more than what's, you know, what we can. Because then that's the, that would be the way that you'd think of all people I would be most to be pitied. And I want to really pick up on something which I believe that God has been speaking to several people across the church around, which is a false idol that I think Redeemer has among our community, and that's the false idol of self-image. We're so tempted, and it's tempting living in London, living in the 21st century in Britain, that the idea of self is the most important thing, and everything in our lives kind of focuses around that. And it restricts our ability to engage properly with God in two massive ways. The first is that we feel unable to engage properly on a Sunday morning in worship to God. So here's a silly example. We don't dance very much, but the Bible commands us to dance. So, so why don't we dance? It doesn't matter if you can or can't dance. The Bible commands it. So let's dance. I say it in myself as well. You know, I'm not saying this is a judgmental thing. I'm saying it as a, you know, come on, church. Let's, let's lose that self-image and let's dance. We might sing a song at the end. Let's pick an exciting one and let's do some dance. You know, let's, let's express ourselves in a way that shows my self-image is not important. Jesus is important. And I'm willing to sacrifice my self-image for that. The second way that it impacts us is our ability to talk to our friends. I shared on Wednesday night that um, I'd managed to have a conversation with some friends at work about this guy, Linvoy Primus. He's coming to speak. And I'd managed to invite 10 people and they had all said that they're going to come. And people kind of burst into this round of applause. But why? It's the easiest ask in the world. But we stop ourselves from asking it because we figure that people are going to judge us for being a Christian. Oh, is it a church thing? Oh, well, you must be a little bit freaky then, mustn't you? No, you know, let's lay that aside and let's talk to those we know who don't know Jesus and let's just be unashamed about what we've got to bring. I mean, there's something as simple as a free curry and an interesting talk. I mean, if we can't invite people to something like that, how on earth are we going to say, give your life to the king of the universe? So I want to implore you this morning. I'm going to ask for a response. I'm going to do it. I wasn't sure where I'm going. I'm going to because I'm standing up here now. I'm not going to change my mind now. I'm going to ask us to respond to this particular word. And I believe that there are many people here this morning who it is something that is over us. And the way I'm going to ask us to respond is by standing up and coming to the front and facing the rest of the community. And then the rest of us are going to cheer you on. Because it's, you've got to lay down self-image. And if you can't lay down self-image in front of other people who think like you, we're never going to be able to do it out in the community. So we'll do it here this morning. This is a safe place with family. So I'm going to ask for a response, and there are three key ways that I want us to respond. The first is this, that you come here this morning because you think that it's right to come to church because it's Easter Sunday. 
But actually, in what you've been hearing in the words of the songs, in what I've brought this morning, you have never realized that this eternal life is something that you could just walk into by faith. That this resurrection body is promised for you, and you want that. You want a resurrection body. You want an eternal purpose. And you have found that up until today, that has been a gap in your life. This morning, simply by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, you can have it. It's guaranteed. It's it's completely because of what he's done. There's nothing you could do to make him love you any more or any less. It's right there for you. I am going to ask you to come to the front as well so that everyone's kind of hidden in one group so that it's a little bit easier for us. But in coming to the front, that's not what makes you a Christian. It's your faith that uh, unites you into a, a relationship with him. And believe me, it's amazing. The second response is... I want to ask us to start sacrificing. And maybe for you it's money, maybe for you it's a self-image thing, maybe for you it is something completely different I've not even mentioned, but you just feel God speaking to you. Let's start sacrificing. Let's start living our lives in the way that the Bible demonstrates this is what a Christian looks like. That if it's not true, then of all people we're most to be pitied. Let's start living for eternity and not today. And the third response is the most challenging one of all, which is stop pretending. There are some here this morning, I think, who fall into this category of some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. If you have been calling yourself a Christian and coming to church maybe for decades, and you realize that actually you don't believe this stuff at all, you just call yourself a Christian I believe Jesus would say to you, stop being a hypocrite and don't come next week. Stay at home. Do something else. Don't pretend. It's a massive challenge, and I don't say it lightly, but it's a waste of your time. In saying this, I'm not saying it to be controversial. I'm saying it because I believe this is the sort of thing that Jesus said. He said, sell all that you have and give your possessions to the poor. If you can't do it, don't follow me. Take up your cross and follow me, is what he said. So if you think that actually money is too important to me, I won't sacrifice it. Self-image is too important to me. I'm not going to sacrifice that. Just stop pretending. Stop lying to yourself. Stop lying to God. But know that if you do that and you feel there's a gap and you want to come back, the grace of God is all sufficient for anything that you can do. And you would be welcome back here in any church in a relationship with Jesus at the drop of a hat. Because his love for you is overwhelming. I realize this is a bit of a tough message. Um, A while ago, then, we were having difficulty getting into our house. The key, when you put it into the lock, it just wouldn't turn. Um, And literally, it got to the point I was trying to one day, and I had to call Anna to come down and let me in because I couldn't couldn't get the door open. And then we put some WD-40 on it, and the joy that you can get of opening a door smoothly, oh, that's amazing. It was was so easy, and it made me so happy. And by Jesus' resurrection, he promised a comforter to help us, the Holy Spirit. And I believe like the oil of the Holy Spirit makes this challenge an easy joy. 
through confidence in him, then our ability to sacrifice everything isn't a big challenge. It might feel like it this morning to stand, but when we make that step, it is so, it's so easy. And it's so, there's so much joy in it. So I'm going to ask us to respond. I want us, if you, if there's anything that I've said this morning that you want to respond to, then I would like you to stand and come to the front when I say in a minute. Um, and we'll pray for you. If the band could come up as well, that would be great now, please. Um, we will sing together. Um, and then Adam is going to lead us in communion. So please, if there's anything that I've said this morning, um, would you please stand now and come to the front? And the rest of us, let's give them a massive cheer to uh, encourage them on. Go on, stand. You can do it. Yeah, and come to the front and face, face um, the rest of the community. Come on, everyone. Let's give them a cheer. Yeah. Cheer one another. Our God is so great. I'm so proud to be part of this group that stood up. Um, if you're a community group leader, um, then it would be great if we could start praying for these um, people. Uh, maybe we can move out along to the sides in front of the tables on each side. Uh, let's sing a song, and then while we're singing that song, um, we'll get these people prayed for. That would be great. Thank you so much.